Chapter Three of The Adventures of a Grain of Dust by Hallam Hawksworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. March, the busy winds that kept no intervals of rest. Wordsworth, except wind stands as never it stood, tis an ill wind turns none to good. Tusser. The winds and the world's work. That saying, idle as the winds, must have started in the days when they didn't know, for if ever there was a busy people, it's the winds. Not only do they help plant the trees of the forest, sow the fields with grass and flowers, and water them with rain, but they make and carry soil all over the world, and like everything else in nature, they have a sense of beauty and the picturesque. Rock, for example, weathered away into dust by the help of the wind, as it is, takes to all sorts of picturesque shapes and of course the winds love music everybody knows that before we get through with this chapter we're going to end a happy day outdoors with a grand musical festival in the forest with light refreshments spice-laden winds from the sea there'll be nobody there but the trees and the winds and john muir and us all nice people one such clouds of dust march leads the procession of the dusty months because the warming up of the land as the sun advances from the south brings the colder and heavier winds down from the north these winds seem to have a wrestling match with the southern winds and with each other and among them they kick up a tremendous dust because there's so much of it lying around loose for the snows have gone and the rainy season hasn't begun and the fields are bare about the dust we get in our eyes most people think these march winds a great nuisance because some of us dust grains are apt to get into their eyes but dust in the eye is only the right thing in the wrong place just think of the amount of dust going about in march that doesn't get into your eye and how nice and fine it is and how mixed with all the magic stuff of different kinds of soil thus brought together from everywhere an english writer on farming says he thinks the fact that english farms have done their work so well for so many centuries is due in no small degree to the march winds that have brought us world-traveled dust grains from other parts of the globe and the wind is a good friend to the good farmer but no friend to the poor one for it carries away dust all nicely ground from the fields of the farmer who doesn't protect his soil and carries it to the farmers who have woodlots and good pastures and winter wheat and leaves it there for woods and pastures and sown fields hold the soil they have as well as the fresh new soil the wind brings to them most of the fine prairie soils in our western states owe not a little of their richness to wind-blown dust in western missouri southwestern iowa and southeastern nebraska are deep deposits of yellowish-brown soil the gift of the winds and my what apples it raises it is in this soil that many of the best apple orchards of these states are located and now of course the apple growers see to it that this soil stays at home but there's another kind of dust that deserves special mention and that's the kind of dust that comes from volcanoes volcanoes make a very valuable kind of soil material often called volcanic ash it isn't ashes really it's the very fine dust made by the explosion of the steam in the rocks thrown out by the volcano the pores of the rocks deep buried in the earth are filled with water and when these rocks get into a volcanic explosion this water turns to steam and the steam not only blows out through the crater of the volcano but the rocks themselves are blown to dust this dust the winds catch and distribute far and wide sometimes the dust of a volcanic explosion is carried around the world 
in the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883, its dust was carried around the earth, not once, but many times. The progress of this dust was recorded by the brilliant sunsets it caused. It is probable that every place on the earth has dust brought by the wind from every other place. So you see, if you happen to be a grain of dust yourself, and keep your eyes and ears open, you can learn a lot, as I did, just from the other little dust people you meet. THE WINDS AND VOLCANOES But that isn't all of this business, this partnership between the volcanoes and the winds. Did anybody ever tell you how the volcanoes help the winds to help the plants to get their breath? It's curious. And more than that, it's so important, this part of the work, that if it weren't carried on in just the way it is, we'd, all of us, all the living world, plants and animals, soon mingle our dust with that of the early settlers we read about in the last chapter. In other words, all the plant world would die for lack of fresh air, and all the animal world would die for lack of fresh vegetables, so they say. According to that fine system, the breath exchanged between the people of the plant and animal kingdoms, the plants breathe in the carbon gas that the animals breathe out. You remember about that. But the amount of carbon gas in the air is never very large, and if there were no other supply to draw on except the breath of animals and the release of this same gas when the plants themselves decay, we'd very soon run out. Now this needed additional supply comes from the volcanoes. Every time a volcano goes off, and they're always going off somewhere along the world's great firing line, it throws out great quantities of this gas, and this also the winds distribute widely and mix through the atmosphere. And another thing, this carbon in the air helps crumble up the rocks already made, and it enters into the manufacture of the limestone in the rock mills of the sea. This limestone will make just as rich soil for the farmers of the future as the limestones of older ages have made for the famous bluegrass region of Kentucky, for example. All of which only goes to show how first unpleasant impressions about people and things are often wrong. A dusty March day, you see, isn't just a dusty March day. It's quite an affair. 2. THE DUST MILLS OF THE WIND But wind is not alone a carrier for other dust-makers. It has dust-mills of its own. The greatest of these mills are away off among the mountains and in desert lands. But after making it in these distant factories, the winds carry much of this fresh new soil material to lands of orchard and pasture and growing grain. Not long ago, two of the professors at the University of Wisconsin found a good illustration of what an immense amount of soil is distributed in this way, and what long distances it travels. Among the weather freaks of a March day was a fall of colored snow that, it was found, covered an area of 100,000 square miles, probably more. The color on the snow was made by dust blown clear from the dry plains of the southwestern states, a thousand miles away. The whole of this dust amounted to at least a million tons, and may even have amounted to hundreds of millions of tons, so the professors think. Little Millstones in Big Business For grinding rocks to get out ore, or for making cement in cement mills, men use big machines, somewhat on the style of a coffee mill. These machines are called crushers. The winds, in their enormous business of soil grinding, however, stick to the idea you see so much in nature, that of using little things to do big tasks as in digging canyons and riverbeds, and spreading out vast alluvial plains by using raindrops made up into rivers, in working the wonders of the ice age with snowflakes, 
and building the bones and bodies of those big early settlers and of all animal life and the giant trees of the forest out of little cells for what do you suppose the winds take for millstones in grinding down the mountains into dust little grains of sand and with the help of the sun and jack frost it makes these fairy millstones for itself the outside of a big rock grows bigger under the warm sun in the daytime and then when the sun goes down and the rock cools off it shrinks and this spreading and shrinking movement keeps cracking up and chipping off pieces of rock of various sizes up on the mountain tops among the peaks the change of temperature between night and day is very great and even in midsummer you can always hear a rattling of stones at sunrise the heat of the rising sun warms and expands the rock and so loosens the pieces that jack frost has pried off with his ice wedges during the night then also during periods of alternate freezing and thawing in spring and fall the rock is slivered up these changes in the weather as between one day and another are due to the winds in january and february for example thaws and freezes are common when the winds blow from the south the snow melts water runs into cracks in the rock and fills their pores then a shift of the wind to the north a freeze and the water in the crevices and the pores turns to ice expands and breaks off more rock and what muscles jack has freezing water exerts a pressure of one hundred and thirty-eight tons to the square foot so there's no holding out against him once he gets his ice wedges in a good crack he sends huge blocks tumbling down the mountainside the larger blocks striking against one another break off smaller fragments the smallest fragments the wind seizes others are washed down by the rains the largest carried away by mountain torrents bump together as they thunder along and so break off more fragments and grind them so small that the wind can pick them up along the banks when the torrents shrink or in their beds when these sudden streams go dry running water and the winds in changing rock into soil running water and the winds each have an advantage over the other water weighs a great deal more than air over eight hundred times as much and so grinds faster with its tools of pebbles and sand the winds on the other hand get over a great deal more territory and they like the lichens understand chemistry two of the gases they always carry right with them carbon dioxide and oxygen help decay the rocks as i said the winds do most work in dry and desert regions but when you remember that over a fifth of the globe is just that dry as a bone most of the time you see that this is a great field it has been so from the beginning for it is thought probable that there was always about the same proportion of desert lands night and day the winds have been busy through all these ages dust is carried up by ascending air currents then the same force that keeps the earth in its orbit gravity pulls down on a grain of dust but its fall is checked by the friction of the air you see there's a lot of mechanics involved in moving a grain of dust and nature goes about it as if it were the most serious business in the world handles every grain as if the future of the universe depended on it in the case of sand or coarse dust unless the winds are very strong gravity soon gets the best of it and down the dust grain comes to the ground again then up with another current then down again carried far by stiff breezes only a short distance by puffs a kind of hop skip and jump but fine dust getting a good lift into the upper currents at the start may stay in the air for weeks in very wild windstorms it has been figured out that there may be as much as one hundred and twenty six thousand tons of dust per cubic mile 
several good farms in the air at once, over every square mile of the earth below. In the broad fields of the west, where dry farming is practiced, they have these huge machines. They are called cultipackers. They are cultivators with big, broad-brimmed wheels that pack the surface of the soil after the blades of the cultivator have stirred it. This not only prevents the moisture in the soil from evaporating as fast as it would otherwise do, but keeps the winds from carrying away the soil itself. 3. The Storm Plows of the Wind Two Kinds of Wooden Plows They use wooden plows, these winds, just as primitive man did, and as primitive peoples do now, but not quite in the same way, and the plowing they do is much better. For man's wooden plow is a crooked stick made from the branches of a tree, while the winds use the whole tree, roots and all, and both on mountain size and on level lands, the amount of plowing they do is immense. Almost all forests are liable to occasional hurricanes which lay the trees over thousands of acres in one immense swath. A large number of these trees, owing to their strong trunks, do not break off but uproot, lifting great sheets of earth. Soon, by the action of its own weight and the elements, this soil falls back. The depth to which this natural ploughing is done depends, of course, on the character of the tree, but as it is the older and larger trees that are most likely to be overturned, since they spread more surface to the wind, the ploughing is much deeper than men do with ordinary ploughs. The result is that new, unused soil is constantly being brought to the surface, and not only this, but air is introduced into the soil far below the point reached by ordinary ploughing. The soil needs air, just as we do, for the air hurries the decay of the soil and its preparation for the uses of the plant. The immediate purpose of ploughing is to loosen the soil so that the roots of the plants can get their food and air more easily. It also helps to keep the fields fertile by exposing the lower soil to more rapid decay. But here's the trouble. While the ordinary plough introduces air into the soil for a few inches from the surface, the subsoil, which is very important to the prosperity of the plant, is practically left out of it, so far as getting needed fresh air is concerned. The long roots of the trees that, among other things, opened for it channels to the air are gone. The burrowing animals that used to loosen up the earth, man has driven away. More than that, the foot of the plough, which has to press heavily on the subsoil in order to turn the furrow, smears and compacts the earth into a hard layer, which shuts out the air, and also, to a certain extent, the water from the lower levels. In mountain regions these storm ploughs, as we may call them, not only help to renew and prepare the soil in the valleys, but are a part of the machinery of delivery of new soil from mountain to valley. When trees on the mountainside are overturned, they not only bring up the soil, which the mountain rains quickly carry to the valleys, but the roots, having penetrated, as they always do, into the crevices of the rocks, bring up stones already partly decayed by the acids of the roots. These stones, as the roots die decay and so release their hold, also go tumbling down toward the valley. Consider how much of this storm ploughing must be done in the forests of the world in a single year, and that this has been going on ever since trees grew big on the face of the earth. In a storm in the woods of California, Muir heard trees falling at the rate of one every two or three minutes, and as I said, it is precisely the trees that can do the most ploughing, the older and larger trees, that are most apt to go down before the wind. Younger trees will bend while older and stiffer trees hold on to the last. Before a mountain gale, pines six feet in diameter will bend like grass, 
but when the roots, long and strong as they are, can no longer resist the prying of the mighty lever, the trunk, with its limbs and branches swaying in the winds, go down as the old giants with crashes that shake the hills. After a violent gale, the ground is covered thick with fallen trunks that lie crossed like storm-lodged wheat. There are two trees, however, Muir says, that are never blown down, so long as they continue in good health. These are the juniper and dwarf pine of the summit peaks. He writes in his book, The Mountains of California, Their stout, crooked roots grip the storm-beaten ledges like eagle's claws, while their lithe, cord-like branches bend round completely, offering but slight holds for winds, however violent. At the Storm Festival with Mr. Muir Trees were among Muir's best friends, and he spent a large part of his life chumming with them. What do you think that man did once? He was always doing such things. He climbed a tree in a terrific gale, so that he could see right into the heart of the storm and watch everything that was going on. Just hear him tell about it. After cautiously casting about, I made choice of the tallest of a group of Douglas spruces that were growing close together like a tuft of grass no one of which seemed likely to fall, unless the rest fell with it. Being accustomed to climb trees and making botanical studies, I experienced no difficulty in reaching the top of this one, and never before did I enjoy so noble an exhilaration of motion. And such odors! These winds had come all the way from the sea, over beds of flowers in the mountain meadows of the Sierras, then across the plains, and up the foothills, and into the piney woods, with all the varied incense carried by the way. Though comparatively young, these trees, the one Mr. Muir climbed into and its neighbors, were about one hundred feet high, and their lithe, brushy tops were rocking and swirling in wild ecstasy. In its greatest sweeps the top of Muir's tree described an arc of from twenty to thirty degrees, but he felt sure it wouldn't break, and so he proceeded to take in the great storm show. Now my eye roved over the piney hills and dales as over fields of waving grain, and felt the light running in ripples across the valleys from ridge to ridge, as the shining foliage was stirred by the waves of air. Oftentimes these waves of reflected light would break up suddenly into a kind of beaten foam and finally disappear on some hillside like sea waves on a shelving shore. This was his impression of the forest as a whole, a dark green sea of tossing waves. But if we study trees as long and lovingly as Muir did, we can pick out the different members of the family a mile away, even several miles away, by their gestures, their style of grave and graceful dancing in the wind. Muir especially mentions the sugar pines as interpreting that storm to him. They seem to be roused by the wildest bursts of the wind music to a passionate exhilaration, as if saying, Oh, what a glorious day this is! This was the picture part of it the glorious moving picture show. Now listen to some of the music. The sounds of the storm corresponded gloriously with the wild exuberance of light and motion, the profound bass of the naked branches and boles booming like waterfalls, the quick, tense vibrations of the pine needles, now rising to a shrill, whistling hiss, now falling to a silky murmur, the rustling of laurel groves in the dells, and the keen metallic click of leaf on leaf, all this was heard in easy analysis when the attention was calmly bent. Even when the grand anthem had swelled to its highest pitch, I could distinctly hear the varying tones of individual trees, spruce, fir, pine, and oak, 
and even the infinitely gentle rustle of the withered grasses at my feet. When the winds began to fall and the sky to clear, Muir climbed down and made his way back home. The storm tones died away, and turning toward the east I beheld the countless hosts of the forest, hushed and tranquil, towering above one another on the slopes of the hills like a devout audience. The setting sun filled them with amber light, and seemed to say, while they listened, My peace I give unto you. Hide and Seek in the Library Did you know that the ash and maple seeds actually have screw propellers like a ship, so that they can ride on the wind? Pettigrew's great work, Design in Nature, makes this very plain, both in word and picture. In what way does the wind help to produce the seed of grasses, as well as carry and plant them? Any encyclopedia or botany will tell you how plants are fertilized. How could a tempest that blew down a tree help its seeds to get a start? Wallace, in his World of Life, says that on a full-grown oak or beech there may be one hundred thousand seeds that are thus given a better chance of life. Speaking of wind plows, what is the object of plowing anyway? The article on preparing the seed bed in the Country Life Reader tells about what plowing means to the soil and also why good soil takes up more room than poor, why it is a good thing to plough deep, but a bad thing if you don't do it just right. And farther on there is a most inspiring poem about the history of the plough, from the days of early Egypt to the present. It begins like this. From Egypt behind my oxen, with their stately step and slow, northward and east and west I went, to the desert and the snow. Down through the centuries, one by one, turning the clod to the shower, till there's never a land beneath the sun but has blossomed beneath my power. The deserts have helped to make western China fertile. How did they do it? Look at your geography map and remember that the prevailing winds of the world are westerly. You'll find many interesting things about the winds and the soil in Keffer's Nature Studies on the Farm and Shaler's Outlines of Earth's History. Shaler's Man and the Earth says a single gale may blow away more soil from an unprotected field than could be made in a geological age, and an hour's rain may carry off more than would pass away in a thousand years if the land were in its natural state. He also tells what to do to prevent the best part of ploughed fields from being carried off by the wind. Have you any idea how far seed may be carried by a hurricane? Wallace, in his Darwinism, deals with this question and it's very important in the story of the earth. Beale's admirably written and illustrated little book on seed dispersal tells a world of interesting things about the wind as a sower. For instance, how pigweed seeds are built so that wind can help them toboggan on snow or float on water. How wind and water work together in the distribution of seeds. About seeds that ride in an ice boat. About the monoplane of the basswood. About the flail of the buttonwood and how the wind helps it to whip out the seeds, and how the seeds then open their parachutes. Dandelions go through a quite remarkable process in preparing for flight. I wonder if you have ever noticed it. Before the seeds get ripe, mother dandelion blankets them at night and puts a rain cloak on them on rainy days, and just won't let them get out, as shown on page 51. And do you know how she opens the flowers for the bees on sunshiny days? There is no island, no matter how remote, that isn't supplied with insects. How do you suppose they get there? You may be sure the wind has something to do with it, or I wouldn't mention the subject at the end of this chapter. See Wallace, Darwinism.
End of chapter 3